0: The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio, initially broadcast in March 2020. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello, and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Sharon Fortney. Historically, museums have often been places that have reflected how the powerful see themselves and the rest of the world. They have often been part of oppressive nation-building projects, part of approaches to knowing the world that seek also to control it and exploit its resources, and connected to colonial projects where people who are understood as other are treated as objects to be known, problems to be solved, and lesser beings to be dominated. What is now the Museum of Vancouver was founded in the 1890s. In its earlier decades, the museum amassed an extensive collection of artifacts from indigenous peoples, not just from local nations but from around the world. Much of this was done under the common colonial presumption at the time that indigenous peoples were doomed to disappear. The museum was also very much a part of the expression in Vancouver of the process of building the Canadian settler nation and its associated identity. Sharon Fortney traces her heritage to Europe on her father's side, and to the Clahoose people, a Coast Salish nation whose territory is north of Vancouver, on her mother's. She is curator of Indigenous collections and engagement at the Museum of Vancouver. According to Fortney, the mandate of the museum has changed significantly in recent decades. There's a logistical element to this, of course. Over time, almost any museum has to narrow its scope, just due to limits in their storage space but it is also related to changing norms, and to histories of indigenous challenge to museums the world over. Today, the Museum of Vancouver focuses specifically on the city of Vancouver itself, and its collection rests on four pillars – reconciliation, urban culture, immigration, and natural history. They still hold indigenous ancestral remains and items of great cultural significance to indigenous peoples that were obtained in inappropriate ways, but they are actively involved in repatriating such things to their nations. Today, they follow strict rules about only acquiring items related to indigenous peoples in good ways and they work particularly with the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples, the nations upon whose territories Vancouver is built, to present both Indigenous-specific exhibits and Indigenous voices and perspectives in as many of their other exhibits as they can. The exhibit that's the focus of today's episode had its beginnings on a Saturday morning in July 2018. Fortney was scrolling through social media on her phone. A friend of hers had posted about her husband being part of a daring protest organized by Greenpeace. Activists, including indigenous people, had rappelled off the ironworkers' memorial bridge and were hanging from ropes to block a tanker ship from leaving the Burrard Inlet. The goal was to raise awareness of the threats posed by the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project to indigenous rights, to local lands and waters, and to the global climate. Perhaps the most striking feature of the 2018 action, and an element that particularly caught Fortney's attention, was that affixed to each suspension rope was a 40-foot-long pennant displaying a design by a different indigenous artist. The banners were visually compelling, highly topical, and related to three of the four main pillars of the museum's collection, namely urban culture because they're protest art, reconciliation because they're indigenous, and the natural environment. The seven Indigenous artists who designed the pennants were Brandon Gabriel, Jackie Fawn, Ocean Highland, Ronnie Dean Harris aka Oz12, Ed Archie Noisecat, Marissa Nahani, and Will George. Uh, And hopefully you'll get to hear Will George on Talking Radical Radio in the coming weeks. Collaboration between Fortney, the rest of the Museum of Vancouver team, Greenpeace, and the Indigenous artists has resulted in an exhibit called Acts of Resistance which will be up until July 2020. It is in a 2,000-square-foot rectangular gallery. The banners are hung so as to break up the space and give the impression of movement. There are spaces at each end of the gallery that allow people to contemplate the work while also viewing the outside environment, and at the center is a video installation which supplements and further contextualizes the banners. I speak with Fortney about the complicated history of museums, about opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and about the Acts of Resistance exhibit.
1: My name is Sharon Fortney, and I'm the Curator of Indigenous Collections and Engagement at the Museum of Vancouver. I have First Nations ancestry on my mother's side, which is Clahoos, Northern Coast Salish ancestry, and then I have German ancestry from my father's side. I've been working in museums in the greater Vancouver area for close to 20 years, and I've been at the Museum of Vancouver for about three years. The show we're going to talk about is called Acts of Resistance, and it's a very visually appealing show about protest art made by local Indigenous activists. I was always interested in museums. My parents used to take me to visit museums when I was growing up. And initially in my career, I wanted to be an archaeologist, so I went to the University of Calgary and completed my bachelor degree there. I was always gravitating towards the lab courses and the hands-on pieces, and I ended up taking a museum's course, which led me to do a small exhibition as a student with the Glenbow Museum in Calgary and uh, became one of their volunteers, and that opened the door to me applying for my first employed position with a museum. And I was at Glenbow for about three years before coming back to British Columbia to do my Master's of Arts at the University of British Columbia, and my focus there was on museum studies. Then I worked in the Vancouver area with local museums and First Nations for several years. And then I did my PhD. So I've done a lot of contract work with local museums, but my position here at the Museum of Vancouver is my first long-term permanent position in a museum. So I've done a lot of different projects with local Coast Salish communities. The Museum of Vancouver is a nonprofit that cares for the city of Vancouver's collection. The museum was started in the 1890s with the Vancouver Art, Historic, and Scientific Association, which was a group of early settlers who came from, a lot of them, from other colonies around the world. And at that time, there was this idea that Indigenous people were like a vanishing race, sort of tied to social evolutionism. And so people were very actively collecting Indigenous objects from around the world. And it was also sort of tied to nation building where people really felt like you have to have... A a well-rounded museum to represent your nation as part of, you know, knowledge building your identity. The collections here are very diverse at the Museum of Vancouver. You would expect local BC First Nations collections, but we also have items from other parts of Canada, South America, Oceania, Africa, Asia. So it's a very, very diverse collection. But our mandate now has shifted. Over time, as museums develop, you can't collect indefinitely. like You run out of storage space, so you have to sort of focus your practice in. Our new focus is on the city of Vancouver, and we have four pillars that guide our collection now, and they are reconciliation, urban culture, immigration, and natural history. So the Acts of Resistance exhibition, which we're going to be talking about, ties into three of those areas in that it's about urban culture like protest relating to the natural environment and involves indigenous art, which would be like reconciliation work. The museum has a fairly substantial collection of protest art. I was just looking at it this morning, actually. If you type protest into our online database, you get 254 results. So that's not a small collection. The Indigenous activism element of that collection is quite a bit smaller, and that's an area where I've targeted for development. What I'm trying to do here, working with the other members of the curatorial team, is to show Indigenous presence in the contemporary world. We're looking at revitalization of culture, supporting contemporary artists collecting items that are ethical and, you know, made for sale and not taken or confiscated in the past when people had fewer rights. And also looking at what are the things that matter to Indigenous communities. So protest art is an important way of documenting the things that matter today to Indigenous communities and showing contemporary presence in the museum.
0: Explain to listeners a little bit about the complicated histories of how museums have sometimes related to Indigenous peoples, and a bit about what it means to do a good job today of having Indigenous presence and Indigenous voices in museum spaces.
1: With all museums, relationships with Indigenous people have really undergone a lot of change over the past few decades. The Museum of Vancouver has engaged successfully at different times in the past, and then there have been periods where the relationships have been a little weaker. We're in a rebuilding phase right now where we have fairly strong relationships with our three host nations and they are targeted in the work we do. Those would be Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. What we try to do and what we've been trying to do since I think the late 80s is work with the three host nations of Vancouver to ensure that they have a presence in all the exhibition projects that we develop in-house. So we have like our temporary exhibitions and then we have a Vancouver Stories wing, which is sort of a timeline approach to telling the history of Vancouver. And early on in those discussions, they told us that they wanted First Nations history to be present as a continuous thread in the story of Vancouver. And so we try really hard to ensure that that happens. And that's a big focus of the work that we're doing today. Whether it's a temporary exhibition, we approach the three host nations and we invite them to share stories in those exhibitions as well. Even though the topic isn't necessarily about them, they have an opportunity to participate. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It really depends a bit on the timeline of the project and what's going on in those communities. They get a lot of asks for consultation these days, you know, like sometimes 65 asks for protocol in a week, and they are smaller nations. So we do the best we can to accommodate their schedules and be inclusive so they can share their stories and voice in our exhibitions. So that's a big priority of the work we do. We also have board members from each of the host nations on our board. About a third of our board is Indigenous at the museum right now, and we're working on having more Indigenous staff in the museum as well. So we're trying on a number of fronts to engage the community and also to make the museum a more welcoming space for Indigenous people. One of the roles I play here at the Museum of Vancouver is I'm on the Collections Committee, but I'm the chair of the Repatriation Committee. Museums are colonial institutions, and they did play a role in removing heritage items from communities. So one of the things we actively do here is we work with communities on repatriation requests. We actually have ancestral remains still at the Museum of Vancouver, so we are actively trying to return ancestral remains to their source communities. But we also work with communities who are looking for items which would be considered culturally sensitive, not appropriate for showing the public, secret society items, things that are important to the revitalization of culture. We accept requests for repatriation and then we work with those communities to try and return heritage items back to them. Our shift towards ethical collecting is we want to be sure moving forward when items come into the museum that they come in here in a good way and that we're not just celebrating, you know, the beauty of art objects made in the past, but that we are looking at the revitalization of culture that's happening today. And there's a lot of very beautiful cultural items being made today, but they're being made for sale. So there's not those complicated histories involved with collecting. Part of our problem as a nonprofit is we have to work to acquire funds so that we can collect in that way. We don't necessarily, you know, have a large pot of money where we can go out all the time buying pieces for the collection. So part of managing the collection is working to return things that shouldn't be here and then putting a lot of thought into what should we be acquiring moving forward. So an example of something that we've recently decided to purchase, they have Indigenous Fashion Week here in Vancouver. The second annual one happened and we had an event at the museum so we've approached a couple of the designers who showed works in Indigenous Fashion Week and are inquiring about commissioning pieces to go into the collection.
0: How did the Acts of Resistance exhibit come about?
1: So the acts of resistance show, it was, you know, a Saturday morning on my phone, you know, looking at my Facebook feed and a friend of mine, her husband, was actually one of the activists who rappelled off the Second Narrows Bridge for the Greenpeace aerial blockade in July of 2018. This was a blockade that was meant to stop a tanker from leaving the inlet and to bring attention to the risks that are being posed by the TMX pipeline project. It was really fascinating to me to like see Will George live streaming while he was hanging under the bridge and to talk about, you know, physically what it was like to be under there. But also, it was just a really beautiful act of, as we call it, acts of resistance. So there were seven activists who rappelled off the structure beneath the bridge to block the tanker from leaving, and each of them had a 40-foot-long streamer attached to the line they were hanging on. And each of those streamers was designed by different Indigenous artists. So it was kind of invoking Indigenous land and culture and also bringing attention to an environmental issue. It was just really, I thought, thought thought-provoking and an exciting piece of action. When I saw it already, I was thinking, I wonder if I could get those streamers for the museum's collection when they're done with them. (laughs) And I was thinking, how long do I need to wait to ask? So I think I waited about a week before I reached out to Greenpeace. In doing so, I already knew a couple of the people who designed streamers that were used in the action. So I knew that there was a willingness on the part of the artists to have their work come to the museum. But it took quite a long time to actually collect the streamers and to bring them here for exhibition because they were part of the evidence. When the RCMP, it took them about 38 hours, I think, to figure out how to lower the activists down safely from the bridge deck and into boats. When they did so, they took the streamers as evidence of the action. And so they were put into garbage bags and they were in police custody or evidence locker for about a year until the time where it was decided they were not pressing charges against those activists. And then they were released. One of them was released to Will George, his personal streamer, and then the rest went to Greenpeace. I was, during that period of a year, occasionally following up with Greenpeace. They were quite interested in the idea of doing an exhibition project with us. We do have other Greenpeace protest items in our collection, so it's not new for us to do work with them. Eventually, when they did get the banners or streamers back last summer, then I was working with Gil Aguilar, their Indigenous allyship coordinator. He helped us because when we collect Contemporary art, we have to get certain forms signed by the artist that gives us permission to exhibit them and also to photograph them for our online database and potentially if they were in a show for an exhibition catalog. So Greenpeace helped us coordinate with the artists to do that work. And then six of the seven banners were actually donated to the museum by Greenpeace. With the consent of the artist, and like I said, the 7th belongs to Will George, and he's been using it for public education outreach, but he kindly loaned it to us to include in the exhibition.
0: I know you weren't directly involved yourself, but to the extent that you can, give listeners a sense of what these opponents of the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project were trying to convey through this action.
1: The action was a joint effort between Greenpeace and local Indigenous activists Greenpeace has done previously other aerial blockades in the United States, but this one was different because they indigenized it with the artworks that were on the banners. But the general idea of the protest, it's about climate change, and it's also about the tsleil Nation, the Squamish Nation, other First Nations who are being affected by the new pipeline project coming from Edmonton, Alberta, out to Burrard Inlet through Burnaby there's concerns that these nations have about the risk that increased tanker traffic will pose to the inlet and whether or not there's actually a good plan in place if there was something like an oil spill because we're seeing like a seven times increase in the amount of tanker traffic that's going to come into the inlet and in the past when we've seen oil spills happening we haven't really seen a great response here on the coast and for the indigenous community there's so much tied to the lands and waters in terms of the importance of food sovereignty ceremony respect for the environment an obligation of stewardship that many of us feel towards the land and the waters and so it's really about making people aware of the risks.
0: we don't have time to talk about all seven of them but pick two or three of the artists and tell me a little bit more about who they are and about their arts practices
1: one of the banners was actually designed by somebody named Jordan Galley, and it was flown by Will George. And It actually features Will's Coast Salish tattoo design. Will's the leader of the Coast Salish Watch House that's been built on Burnaby Mountain. He built the watch house that's on there for Slaver-Tooth Nation. The Watch House, which is part of Protect the Inlet, another organization, they have their own flag as well. So Will had his Watch House flag, which is his raised fist showing his tattoo. And then his banner has the crescents that are part of his tattoo, along with some salmon eggs, thinking about, you know, the importance of salmon in the Barard Inlet to the tsleil people. So that's one of the streamers that's in the exhibition, along with the Watch House flag. We also have a streamer by a young and -and up-and-coming Slayer artist named Ocean Highland. her streamer. It's speaking to the importance of protecting and stewarding the land for future generations. There is a young girl depicted on the streamer. It's a beautiful red streamer. It's got words on it that translate to, It is in our blood to protect this land. Ocean has also been a good advocate. She was featured in Teen Vogue. She did an editorial in there. She's been doing a lot of projects like at Noon Creek Hatchery and the Maplewood Mud Flats where she's created public art and done art workshops to engage people about habitat restoration and the importance of local lands to the tsleil people. She's a great granddaughter of Chief Dan George. So she's, you know, really a great spokesperson and an activist. I believe she's still in art school, but she does do printmaking and she does sell her prints online and have her own Instagram page, which I would encourage you to check out. A lot of her artwork is actually tied to her activism and to her relationship with local lands and waters. We also have a streamer by Ronnie Dean Harris, who's a Coquitlam, Statlium, Nakatmic artist. He did a Salmon Arrow design, which he's also done on other activist fundraising items like T-shirts. The arrows represent the spirit of the ancient ritual of the salmon cycle to sustain the land and the creatures since time immemorial and the importance of wild salmon as an ecological and cultural keystone species. He's very concerned about the habitat and the collapse of the salmon fishery, so that's what his streamer is representing. He's a hip-hop artist. He goes by Oz12. He's also very heavily involved in reconciliation work in the Vancouver area and works for a company called Reframing Relations, where they actually use art as a tool to engage schools and different businesses in reconciliation work and the idea of allyship. So thinking about different issues that affect Indigenous people and ways that you can understand and support them. He also does acting He has done several murals in the Vancouver area. Often they feature sturgeon. He's done one for Vancouver Mural Fest There's one here at the museum on a shipping container that we have outside in our parking lot. And that one speaks to the village of Sanok, on which the Museum of Vancouver is actually situated on top of an ancestral village site. So he invokes that village in that artwork. And on the roof of the shipping container, there will be like a wayfinding (laughs) arrow. And Sanok will be written in Henkaminem and Squatmish language. So if you were flying over, you would actually see it like a map pinpoint. He's just very active throughout the Lower Mainland and going to music festivals here and abroad. We also had one by Ed Archie Noisecat. He's quite a well-known artist from BC, but he now resides in Seattle. His streamer is called Guardians of the Salish Sea, and it actually represents a pod of resident orcas that are in this area here. The orcas are killer whales and they're swimming around creating balance. So he did a kind of yin-yang kind of effect with his design using just black on the blue background. He's a graduate of Emily Carr College of Art and Design, and like I said, he's living in the Seattle area, and his artworks are sold in many Seattle galleries. He's probably the most established artist whose designs were used for the banners. He works in a number of mediums like wood, bronze, silver, gold, glass, printmaking, and we were just really thrilled to have an opportunity to work with him.
0: Paint a picture for listeners of the exhibit itself.
1: We had about a 2,000 square foot rectangular gallery. The streamers, like I said, they're very large. They're 40 feet long and they're about 10 feet wide at their widest end. So I worked with the head of our fabrication team, Joshua Doherty. He came up with several design options. What we really wanted to do was hang them in such a way that they felt like they were in motion. So they're not just hung straight, they're hung sort of bent, some of them, so that it kind of creates a little corridor. So you, you come into a wall that's been created with two of the banners, one facing forward, one facing backwards. And then you wend around them into the space. The main colors of the banners are red and sort of a teal blue, so we've paired them like that as well. So it's a very beautiful, colorful experience as you come into the space. And they're hanging from lines and clipped in place. And then there are other lines that come down holding a rope barricade made with climbing ropes. And that's just to keep people from getting a little too close to the banners because they are actually fairly fragile because they were made for action. They weren't actually, you know, made as art to come into a museum. They're made out of ripstock nylon fabric, and then the designs were projected onto them. And Greenpeace activists actually traced them with Sharpies or pencils, and then they painted them in a warehouse they got, especially for the project in Burnaby. The paint is a little bit crackled now because they were crumpled up and put into garbage bags for a year in evidence storage. So we have the barricades to protect them. And then at each end of the exhibition, the gallery has these little alcoves where you can look out over False Creek and Burrard Inlet and Stanley Park. So what we've done is put hammocks in those spaces so people can think about the art as protest action and then think about what the activists were trying to protect by, you know, maybe spending some time in the alcoves and the hammocks looking outdoors. We also have a swing in the center of the exhibition that's oriented towards a video screen that's also just hanging suspended by these small lines. We had a film made for this project. So Ronnie Dean Harris, Oz-12, like I said, he's a multimedia artist. We had him work with Will George to create a short, little over five-minute documentary about, you know, why did Will do the action? What was it like when he was under the bridge and showing the different banners as they were being used? We left it as ambient sound in the gallery so that you come in and there's a bit of a hip-hop music soundtrack and also Will talking about his experience participating in the aerial blockade. And then we have a second television near the end, which features a film that was already in the exhibition City on Edge with Carlene Thomas. And that one, we have a headset dangling from a line from the ceiling. And if you want to listen to that film, then you have to put the headset on for that one. But it's just a visually experience and I think really colorful. We had recently a family event called Winter Wander where we have lower admissions and we get about 2800 visitors through the museum on that day and the feedback we got from families was just really positive and that they enjoyed the exhibition a lot.
0: Overall, what role do you think the museum can play in terms of contributing to public conversation in the context of struggles like that against the trans Mountain Pipeline and of reconciliation efforts more generally?
1: Well, I think it's our duty to do things that engage the community and provide opportunities for education. Like, I understand change is a slow thing in some cases, right? Like, I've actually worked at the Museum of Vancouver in the past, and it was a bit more difficult at that time. People maybe weren't ready for some of the conversations that we're having now. So when I came here, I thought it's part of my role to provide opportunities for non-Indigenous people to engage with Indigenous issues. So I look for things that I think are relevant and important to the people that I'm friends with in the community and, you know, family members, and I'm trying to find ways to bring them into the museum. It's how we come together as a society is we have a dialogue and an opportunity to learn. So it isn't just having an exhibition on display, it's having programming that brings people in and encourages engagement. But I also think there's a duty for the museum to actually make an effort to collect protest art and items that speak to contemporary issues for Indigenous people. We're trying to show vibrant, thriving cultures, not people like stuck in the past or somebody else's idea of what it is to be Indigenous.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Sharon Fortney, Curator of Indigenous Collections and Engagement at the Museum of Vancouver. To learn more about the Acts of Resistance exhibit, search for it at museumofvancouver.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.